Let's bow our heads as we petition the Lord today. Lord, you're our Holy Father, and it's amazing that you speak so clearly to us today from your ancient and inspired word. And we want to hear your voice and to more completely realize that you are our mighty, loving, and powerful God who is always present with us and that you always have our best interests at heart even when we hurt or are filled with fear and anxiety and perplexity. You know us, you understand us, and we are grateful for your love shown so fully in Christ, who humbly ended our circumstances, our humanity, our trials, our temptations, our mortality, our sufferings, even a brutal death. And we are confident he did so to redeem us and that one day he will bring justice and healing to the land. Thank you, Lord. But until then, help us to trust you and to see our lives as under your sovereign will and care. Often our lives are difficult. We struggle greatly when things go wrong. Sometimes we blame you even when it's our fault. We lack faith. We are selfish. We have lousy attitudes and we make mistakes. We sin and we bring consequences upon ourselves. And sometimes we need your discipline. Help us to see your love in that. We become resentful and angry when injustices come from somebody else's power or sinful behavior over us, and we're vulnerable and fearful of sickness and death. We grieve the loss of those we love, and we don't like the aging process. We don't want to put us, be put aside and alone and mourn physical and cognitive function losses. And we ask why, when there's no obvious reason for what happens to us. We tend to become bitter, impatient, disillusioned, depressed, and bewildered. Lord, you are sovereign over all that exists and happens, and you are omniscient. Not a sparrow falls, nor a hair of our head is lost without your awareness. That you have such an all-encompassing view of us is amazing and reassuring. We are always on your mind. Help us to find your peace in the storms of life. Bestow upon us the mindset of Job, who in the face of overwhelming tragedies proclaimed that even if you slay him, he would still trust in you. Help us to believe as Abraham, who trusted you to work in him plans and purposes beyond human understanding or capability. Give us the strength of Moses, who despite doubts and anxieties and hesitancies amidst daunting circumstances moved forward submitting to your plan. Give us the confidence of the psalmist, who relied upon you as his refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Help us to be still and know that you are God, even in the midst of chaos and tumult, when the waters roar and foam and the mountains tremble. Help us to trust your promises, that sometimes when our paths are crooked and dark and we don't understand what you have purposed for us, you will still make the crooked straight, and that in the darkness your light will shine brightest. Lord, help us to allow you to fill our journey through this mysterious world of good and evil with your glory. Lord, grant us the attitude of Paul. May we find your grace to be sufficient because your power is made perfect in weakness. May we be confident that in everything there is purpose, that all works for good to those who are called according to your purposes. Use what is going on in our lives to grow us and honor yourself. Despite our earthly woes, you have given us heavenly, eternal blessings. Help us to give thanks in everything. That is your will for us, Lord. When we have reached the end of ourselves, lift us up. Show us your strength. 
But most of all, give us the mind of Christ, who even as he considered the terrifying consequences of his great passion for us, the injustices and the humiliation, the tortures and agonizing death, the unholy burden, and the separation from you, his Father, awaiting him at the cross, he still bowed before you, committed himself to you, and prayed, not my will but thine be done. When we are uncertain and when we suffer, may we do as Christ did. Trust you, our Heavenly Father, and in your promises and awesome power, knowing that what we have been given, no matter how difficult it is, is within your purposes and can be for your ultimate glory. May we accept it, look for you within it, and be determined to live to the praise of your glory, whether we understand it or not. We ask these things in the name of our Savior. Amen. Scripture this morning is taken from the Old Testament book of Exodus. We're in the 13th chapter and the 17th verse. I'm going to read Exodus 13, 17 through Exodus 14, 14 this morning. If you're following along and the Bible's provided, you find it on page 65. visiting with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, feel free to take the one you find under the seat back there. It looks like this. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. You can consider that our gift to you. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones with you from here. They moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness, and the Lord went before them. By day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and camp in front of Pi-Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall camp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen, his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hiroth, 
in front of Baal's ephod. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. If you were to ask your GPS to take you from my house in Otis to say the Lucerne Inn in Dedham, it would likely give you several options. You can go down Route 180 to 1A and then head north, or you can go up 180 to Route 9 and then take 46 to 1A and head south. The shortest route from my house in Otis to the Lucerne End would take you over the dirt roads that many of you are going to drive next week getting to the annual church picnic. The shortest route, however, is not the fastest route. And it certainly is not the best route. Sometimes a GPS seems to know the difference between shortest and fastest and best. And sometimes a GPS does not. I'm sure you've had some experiences along those lines. I'm thankful that we don't have to rely on a GPS to navigate real life. And that the Lord is the most reliable navigation system we can have. And unlike the multitude of all the guidance gadgets that are available to us today, God always leads his people in the way that is best. And that is what I hope we will see from our text this morning, that God leads his people wisely according to his plan. Father, we humble ourselves now as we sit underneath your word, asking that we might receive its full import in our lives and that it might bring about the changes that you want it to. Challenge us with your truth, Lord. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When Pharaoh let the people go, we read in Exodus 13, 17, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. We pick up the story of Israel's journey this morning. The first thing we note is that God is leading his people. He does this through his prophet Moses. You see that in the first few verses of chapter 14, that God speaks to Moses, who in turn speaks to the people and tells them, relays the message of God to them. In other words, God leads his people through his appointed leaders. He always has, and he still does. But he also here leads his people rather dramatically, miraculously, we might even say, in the form of a cloud. Chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. By night in a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel. By day or night, neither the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night left its place from the people. It's a pillar of cloud and fire. It is a visible, ever-present sign of God's dwelling among his people. 
It was not, as some who are averse to the miraculous would have you believe, a natural phenomena. Uh, we know full well that natural cloud formations don't linger very long, right? And they're always changing. But this cloud, you understand, never departed from the people of Israel for the journey in 40 years. This cloud is what's leading and guiding God's people. It is the means by which God is directing his people and through which his presence with them is seen and, and is felt and is known every single day. So the first thing we see in this text is that God leads his people. Have you ever thought how good it is of God to lead you? How good it is of God, the psalmist asked, right? Who are we that you are mindful of us? But God indeed leads his people. Second, we note that God leads his people wisely. He knows the hearts of his people. He knows what they can handle and he knows what they can't handle. And so Moses tells us that God chooses not to take the Israelites along the shortest way. He chooses a longer way. He chooses a different way because the direct way to the promised land, a journey they may have been able to make within a few weeks, it ultimately took them 40 years, but that direct way would have taken them right through what you and I would call militarized zones, outposts of Egyptian soldiers and fierce Philistine warriors. And even though the Bible tells us that the Israelites marched out boldly, your translation might say confidently or defiantly, that is how they left Egypt. They went out boldly, and it says that they were armed for battle. They may have been armed for battle, but they were not seasoned fighters. Been making bricks their whole lives. And they were not truly ready for any war, and God knew that full well. So... So he didn't lead them in that direct route because he knew they couldn't handle it. God knows you. God knows what you can handle. God knows every one of us better than we know ourselves. So God leads his people, and he leads his people wisely. That Israel had a frail faith is proven quickly. As soon as they saw the dust clouds of that powerful military machine bearing down on them in hot pursuit. As soon as they heard the thundering hooves of the horses carrying the most technically advanced army in the world, how did they respond? What did they do? Well, the people turned immediately from being bold to being terrified. That's what they did. In their great fear, the scripture teaches, they cried out to the Lord. Nothing wrong with that. That's what we ought to do, right? When we come up against something that's intimidating to us, that's what we ought to do. We ought to cry out uh, to the Lord. Nothing wrong with that. But theirs doesn't seem to be a cry of faith. Rather, a cry of desperation. It's even a cry of accusation. And how do we know this? We know this because we read on to see how they spoke to Moses. The evidence uh, of this is twofold. First, we look at how they spoke to Moses. With sarcasm, they confront their great leader. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? Isn't the Bible funny? I mean, that's awesome. I mean, it wasn't a nice thing to say, but it's funny. It's Egypt for crying out loud. There's pyramids everywhere. What's in the pyramids? Graves. There's graves all over the place. Not enough down here? We got to come over here? Think about it. That's funny. 
So they're sarcastic to him. They, they think they're going to die. They're sure that their destruction is imminent. And so they're going to deliver a few parting shots. They're going to give it to Moses. And their attack gets even more personal. It says, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Didn't we say that to you? Well, if they did say it, the Bible doesn't record it. It's more likely that they were in the moment suffering from that quick revisionist thinking that happens when the best laid plans seem to go awry and people start distancing themselves from agreements and decisions that they made like rats off a sinking ship. And they start to say, I never said that. I always thought that was a bad idea. I never believed for a second that this would work. And begin to convince themselves that that was their position all along. They turn on Moses. And the way that they turn on Moses is one indication of their faithlessness. But there's a second proof. It's a greater proof. It's found in the scripture itself. Psalm 106. It's it's what's known as a psalm of remembrance. And it recounts, among other things, Israel's long history of rebelling against the Lord. And that's how the psalm explains the Israelites' behavior here at the Red Sea. Psalm 106, verse 7. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, by the Red Sea. An up close and a personal front row seat to all the plagues that God had inflicted on Egypt. A, a nighttime exodus en masse where they walk out of this country in divisions with the gold and the silver of their oppressors. Waking up for the first time in centuries. The first time that anyone could remember that they did not have to go out in the blazing sun and make bricks. A glorious cloud leading them all the way. All these signs of God's steadfast love forgotten in the face of distress. And the people rebel. You see, adversity, if we're not careful, can lead us to rebellion. Trouble can lead us to turn our back on God. Hardship has the potential to incite in us a sort of spiritual amnesia where the great disappointments or the threats of any given moment fill us with such a fear and desperation that it overtakes our sense of God's goodness or even our willingness to consider that God might be present here. Jesus spoke about this in his parable of the sower, right? where the seed of God's word is sown into the lives of people and it begins to grow. But the scorching sun of persecution and trouble is intense and the plant, having no firm root, withers and dies. This is one of the reasons that Paul instructs us in his letter to the Colossians that we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. This is why James, in in his letter, says that we should receive the word implanted, that is grafted into us. And that is what is able to save our souls. As we face adversity, and we surely will, we want to be grounded in the truth of God's word. 
That God's word is the revelation of his character. And we want that to be what holds us fast so that we can endure the blazing hot trials of life which are guaranteed to come. We should not wait until problems come to start building our faith, but knowing they will come, we saturate ourselves in the truth of who God is. We make it our habit to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. We bathe in what he is capable of in his mighty hand and his awesome power. And we let our minds dwell on things that matter most. Things which are of eternal significance. Beloved, in the face of great threat, the people of God seek God's face. We must be careful that adversity doesn't cause us to rebel. It doesn't push us in in a direction opposite to God. The rebellion of Israel here as they are pinned down between the desert and the sea proves why they are not ready to be led by the direct route, by the shortest route. The threats that they would have faced undoubtedly in those places would have caused them to fall away, would have caused them to turn back to a life of slavery. Look at what they said. They, they said it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. In his Exodus commentary, Phil Riken says, this is more than a loss of nerve, a lack of faith. By pledging their allegiance to Pharaoh, they're denying the power of God. He says, we're often tempted to do the same thing. God wants to bring us all the way out of our sins. Our problem is that we only come out part way. We decide to follow Christ, but as soon as we start having problems, we get scared and go right back to our old ways of coping. Anger, addiction, depression, distraction. No matter how much we used to hate it, there's a security in the way that we used to live. So we return to the same old harmful friendships, the same old sinful attitudes, the same old nasty Temptation for Israel is a temptation for you and I. Those poor people did not know yet or believe that it is better to die in the service of God than to live in service to anything else. It's better to die in the service of God than to live in service to anything else. Now, the Israelites are in a dodgy spot. Nobody's going to disagree with that. But you know what? Their predicament is not news to the Lord. If you read the text closely, it reveals that the Israelites are exactly in the place God wanted them to be. Chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hiroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Okay, this is God's directions. This is where you guys are supposed to camp. Now you look at verse 9. This right where their Egyptian enemies overtook them. Right where God told them to camp. This showdown is not bad luck. It is not a a bad military move on the part of Israel. It is orchestrated by God. 
So we can add to what this text teaches us, first, that God leads his people, second, that he does so wisely, third, that he does so according to his we might back up for just a minute and take a look at a verse that would be so easy to overlook. Because it seems like an addition to the narrative, maybe even an editorial comment. It's one of those verses that looks like it probably ought to be in parentheses in the Bible. We're talking about chapter 13, verse 19. I'll read verses 18 and 19 so we keep the context. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, but Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Now, some of you have been reading along. I'm sure you've read this text. You've read Exodus 13. Did it strike you odd that there's some reference in here to Joseph's bones? In the middle of the story? I mean, in a way, this is, this is kind of comical, too, if you think about it. Because you think, of the, and this is rich. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I actually only have one point to make here. But anyway, I still think this is rich. Because, well, I mean, think about it. Let's go, let's go. Everybody out. Everybody out. We got to go. Get the, you got to get the bread. No, don't have time for the yeast. Put the bowl. Get the bowl. Put it in your clothes. Put it over your shoulder. Grab the silver. Grab the gold. Go, go, go. Uh, who's going to get Joseph? <laughs> who's going to lug the mummy? Somebody has to go out and find this guy and roll a stone away and bring him with us. I mean, this is rich. I think it's interesting. Well, I wouldn't press it too far, but I think it's interesting that the deliverance of the Israelites is accompanied by an empty tomb. I think it's interesting that even though they had lost sight of God, by and large, there was still an awareness of an oath made long ago. But the, none of that is my point here. Here's, here's my point. They go to get Joseph's bones because a promise had been made. Where does this come from? Genesis chapter 50, verse 24 and 25. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry out my bones from here. Interesting, too, that Joseph was sold into slavery, and yet here it is, the, the full circle. Into slavery and the whole bunch out. That's not my point either. Hebrews 11.22. Told you this is rich. Hebrews 11.22 notes this same incident. It says, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. What does this mean? How does Joseph know what's going to happen to the Israelites hundreds of years after his death? He knows because God told him, because God revealed it to him. And how could God reveal it to him if it were not already established as part of God's plan? This one sentence in the narrative about a patriarch's bones anchors what's happening in the present to what was revealed and agreed to long before and reiterates a comforting truth that God wisely leads his people according to his plan. You may be here this morning and you're a little frustrated by where your life is or isn't going. 
If you are God's child, you can be assured of this. He may not be leading you on the shortest route, but he is leading you in the way that is best for you. The hills and the valleys and the twists and the turns, these are not pointless wanderings. This is necessary terrain for the strengthening of your faith and the development of your Christian character. Your journey is where you will come to know God. And your journey is where you will experience His salvation. And that is where you will learn to trust Him which is what he wants of you. When all of a sudden Israel finds itself hemmed in with an army on one side and the sea on the other, it's not by accident. God has led his people to this seemingly impossible situation. They are quite understandably petrified. And they're beginning to panic. So Moses gives a quick State of the Union address. Begins with a strong command. Do not be afraid. Probably you've heard it said, maybe you've said it yourself, you can't tell someone what to feel, but the Bible disagrees. Moses tells these people, in spite of the obvious and scary circumstances that they are facing, that they should not fear. Jesus told his disciples the same thing when he was telling them that he was going to have to leave them and they were all upset. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give it to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Fear is sometimes just an instinct, right? Sometimes it's just a reaction. You can't help it. But sometimes it's a choice. And you know what? possible to make a different choice. It is possible to choose faith over fear. Look at the advice Moses gives, verse 13. Stand firm and you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. Now those are specific words given to a specific situation As God's prophet, Moses has a sense of what God will do, but his words also have a broader application because they are repeated elsewhere in Scripture. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, speaks about the battles that all of us are going to face. He reminds us that even when they happen to be physical in the flesh, they're really always spiritual battles. And that's true, beloved. That is true. Every battle we face in the flesh is really a spiritual battle. In the flesh, we might wrestle with addiction. The struggle manifests itself physically, but the battle is for the soul, spiritual. We may be afflicted with an eating disorder. It's a physical reality, but its roots are spiritual. We might feel stuck in an unfulfilling marriage or hate the singleness that we are called to or the widowhood that has been thrust upon us and we may be tempted to do whatever we can to change that situation even if it's outside the revealed will of God. The needs are real. Driven by flesh and blood. But the conflict is spiritual. And so what does Paul in Ephesians tell us to do? He says, therefore put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm. 
and you read a passage of Scripture and it says the same thing three times in a verse or two, that should be getting your attention. That's the direction Moses gives God's people when they're facing this great dread. Hand firm. Hold your ground. Don't be afraid. Years ago, a friend of mine owned Chesapeake Bay Retriever. I don't know if you're familiar with that breed of dog. Beautiful breed of dog. Powerful dog. As I remember it, he had a head about the size of a basketball. And he wasn't very friendly. One day I was visiting him. Uh, he was at his home out in the yard doing yard work, and I pulled in. I stepped out of my truck into his yard around the corner of the house comes this dog. Charging right at me, barking. It's, a, it's amazing what can go through your mind in a short period of time. How many options you actually can weigh. So I know, you know what I wanted to do when I saw this dog barking and coming at me? I wanted to turn around and I wanted to run. But I know if I expose my backside to this dog, I will have at least a hole in my pants. Not a good option. I thought, well, I can always punch the dog in the face. Probably hurt my hand, but he probably wouldn't like it if I showed up and punched his dog. Well, I, I didn't have any other option, really, other than to stand still and see what was going to happen, and that's what I did. I stood rock steady still. And the dog charged at me and jumped at me and bounced off me and then went on his own way. <laughs> that's not an easy thing to do. Stand still. And life threatens us regularly with menaces far greater than Chesapeake Bay Retrievers, doesn't it? And when that happens, when life threatens us this way, one of the hardest things to do is stand still. Hold your ground. See what God will do. Charles Spurgeon wrote, I dare say you'll think it a very easy thing to stand still, but it's one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. Perhaps the first thing we learn in the drill of human armies, but it's one of the most difficult to learn under the captain of our salvation. The apostle seems to hint at this difficulty when he says, stand fast and having done all, still stand. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit, long experience, and much grace. Hard to stand firm. Hard to stand still. But we get ourselves into trouble when we don't. We roll up our sleeves and we make things happen that shouldn't happen. We decide on actions that may give us relief in the short term. But robs God of any chance of glorifying Himself in our circumstances. We do what we can to save ourselves, and we forget that we belong to God. And it's up to Him to save us from these situations. He will if He wants to. And He'll do what He chooses, and what He chooses is best, because it'll be for His glory. What do you suppose would have happened to the Israelites if they disobeyed Moses' command for them to stand firm? What if they had fought? They would have run out there, and they would have been slaughtered. What if they had retreated? What if they just dove into the sea? They would have drowned. The only reasonable option they had in that moment was to stand firm. Years ago, a trusted friend told me, if you don't know what to do, don't do anything. 
And that's good advice. But that's not what Moses is commanding. When he tells the Israelites, do not be afraid, he's using what commentator John Currid says is the strongest possible form of expressing negation in the Hebrew language. In other words, Moses is not comforting the people, but he's rebuking them. Why is he rebuking them? Because they had no reason in his mind to be afraid. So he's telling them that standing firm is actually doing something. It feels like you're doing nothing, but it is doing something. What is it doing? It is demonstrating faith in God. Which is what he wants from us. And Moses tells them why they can do this and why they should do that in chapter 14. Verse 14, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Words that speak and penetrate into anxious hearts and minds today, I pray. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. You need only be silent. The Lord will fight for you. Stand firm. And look for the salvation of the Lord. He's able to deliver. And you know what? He might. Next week, Lord willing, we'll see. We'll see what the Lord will do for Israel. But today, child of God, walk away knowing this. God is leading you wisely according to his As the psalmist says in Psalm 138, verse 8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. And he won't. Our concluding hymn this morning will take some of you way back and many of you into uncharted territory. We're going to stand and with gusto sing... An old hymn of the faith called, He is Able to Deliver Thee. Now, if you need the melody, it's in your bulletin. Your eyes have to be better than mine. Um, And it will also be projected. So sing it loud, sing it proud, and I guarantee you'll be singing it later in the day, because it's one of those songs.